hide your kids. Lock the doors. You're listening to HR's most dangerous podcast. Chad Sowash and Joel Cheeseman are here to punch the recruiting industry right where it hurts. Complete with breaking news, brash opinion, and loads of snark. Buckle up, boys and girls. It's time for the Chad and Cheese Podcast. What's up, boys and girls? It's your favorite guilty pleasure, the Chad and Cheese Podcast. I'm your co-host, Joel Cheeseman, joined as always by the Prince of Portugal, Chad Sowash. And today we are happy to welcome Bring it. Cynthia O'Young, VP of Inclusion, Equity, and Belonging at Robinhood and author of a new book entitled All Are Welcome, How to Build a Real Workplace Culture of Inclusion that Delivers Results. Cynthia, welcome mm-hmm. to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I'm thrilled to be here. You're very welcome. Look, your resume is uh, pretty intimidating. What should our listeners know about you uh, yes. uh, that I didn't touch on in the intro? Oh, uh, let's see. I um, I've been doing DEI work for the past 20 years in both tech and financial services, but um, I didn't start my career there. I actually. Um, I'm a marketer at heart. Yeah. So before I got into HR at all, I spent 10 years working at advertising agencies doing consumer research. Yeah. And strategic branding. And that was a lot of fun. Wow. Um, working on commercials, but it was a very um, burnout kind of industry. So mm-hmm. I, uh, I, after about th- that decade, I needed to make a switch. And somehow thought going into HR was going to be easier. (laughs) Yeah. You certainly would not have bigger budgets, that's for sure. (laughs) That's right. Not not at all. Um, And uh, so, but, you know, I've I've been lucky enough to... um, be able to do this work in the San Francisco Bay Area where I'm born and raised and I still have family uh, living in the house that I grew up in. You know, um, Mm -hmm. I think what's relevant for this conversation for people to know is that um, I embody a lot of different dimensions of diversity that really inform why I do the work that I do now. What are they? Good question. I, uh, I'm Asian. I'm also a woman. Uh, my parents are immigrants. Okay. I, uh, they came from China with nothing. So we grew up kind of lower middle class. My mom worked as a seamstress. My dad uh, went to community college and became a civil engineer for working for San Francisco. And I grew up in a primarily um, black neighborhood. Okay. Um, my brother, one of my brothers is gay. The other brother is developmentally disabled. Um, my father served in the Air Force when he was young. And um, my mom, you know, as a seamstress, um, you know, was primarily stay at home, but uh, did end up working uh, when we were like in middle school and up. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I've got all these different sort of influences uh, in, you know, growing you, you up. You need to tell your story to Hollywood. I know, that, I know that's a side <laughs> note, but good Lord, that's a good story. Gosh. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, but you know, that's that's what that's part of who what has made me who I am and why I have such a passion for social justice and equity in the world. I love it. Because I grew up watching, you know, people treat my family members very differently just because of who they are mm-hmm. and not giving them sort of, you know, benefit of the doubt or time of day. 
when um, they are fully capable of like doing so many things. And that that is always, you know, incidents where people would look at my brother who's disabled and not want to hire him or even interview him for a role. Right. Those types of things have stuck with me throughout the years. And that's why I do what I do. Well, let's jump into the book right out of the gate. The book, All Are Welcome, How to Build a Real Workplace Culture of Inclusion That Delivers Results. Now, we all know research demonstrates that diversity is good for business. And over the past decade, we've seen little proof of hiring, retention, and promotion outcomes that should be coming after all of this research demonstrates that it's good for business, but we're not seeing the the actual outcomes. So it seems to me, and and, and you've been on this on this path for many years, it's, but it seems like to me that corporate America really doesn't care. Am I right? Is is that what we've seen? We've seen more, you know, pretty much glad handing. What's going on here and how can we change uh, decades of inequity? Great question. We start with the easy questions first. I know. (laughs) We start with the softballs first. You know, it's just dive right Mm -hmm. in, right? Um, So, you know, I don't think it's that corporations or the people who run corporations more specifically, right? I don't think it's that they don't care. They do care. That's why you have people in roles like mine trying to drive change and lead progress in more diversity and inclusion and equity and belonging inside Mm -hmm. our organizations. Um, I think the main issue has been a lack of understanding of what it takes to change. Whose lack of understanding, though? Because we have those people in those positions, right? And we're spending billions of dollars on training. So it it seems at this point, like it's been a smokescreen. Who who needs to understand? Is it the C-suite? Or is it actually the people in the positions who are supposed to be carrying this out? It's both. Okay. It is definitely both. How I kind of view this is that it's really, it's not just C-suite's responsibility, though. It's Mm -hmm. everyone's responsibility. So, you know, everyone who feels like this isn't work for them to do, like that's part of what the change entails. That's uh-huh. why we haven't had progress. Everyone needs to see a role that they themselves play in whether or not we're going to, you know, have really diverse, inclusive teams, right? So, you know, when I think about like leaders of an organization who are role modeling leadership qualities and setting the tone of uh, what they're expecting from people in their organizations, if they're not actually saying that more than just this is important, but they're saying, if they're not saying things like, here's what we expect you to do about it, right? Mm-hmm. Here's, you know, where we think it's more than just training. Cause to your point, you know, a lot of companies think that, oh, if I just invest in training, it's going to be the end all be all and change everything. <laughs> and it doesn't. No. Right. right. And, and so, you know, we, we have these like misguided notions of what it takes. And, uh, and I think that we just haven't gone deep enough, both from an inner self person mm-hmm. kind of like perspective, right? Like we all have to like look at how we view things and where we have bias and how that tends to show up to also looking at the systems and things that we've set up inside our companies, right? Because they're based on those beliefs, Um, And so, you know, in Silicon Valley, as an example, like there's a a huge belief in the meritocracy. Yes. And that 
if you work really hard and you're really smart, then you will make it. And mm -hmm. people who don't just can't cut it. Right. Right. And uh, and I think that's a myth. And I think those are the types of myths and beliefs that we have to blow up in order to make progress. That sounds like the American way, though, right? It sounds like everybody's been programmed to believe in meritocracy, that if you work hard enough and you pull yourself up by your bootstraps, anybody can make it. But at least over the last 40 years, we've seen a huge divide in socioeconomics, right? So as we see that divide... Um, how much harder is it as you start to talk to the entire workforce and say, hey, this is all our job? Well, you know, you've got a CEO who's getting paid 350 times that the mean of employees. The employees look at you and say, wait a minute, <laughs> this isn't my job. How hard is it for you to be able to motivate those those, those individuals uh, to be able to to understand that this is important because this is a community? Yeah, that's uh, that is the crux of of my role. That's that's the hardest, the biggest challenge, I think. That's not easy. No, no. And hence back to your original question, why we haven't made progress <laughs> in the <past> years. <laughs> right? Um because it isn't easy. I mean, people kind of think that, oh, all you have to do is just hire more people from different backgrounds. And if it were that easy, everyone would be doing it. Yeah. Um, but to your point, it's, you know, we have these very sort of entrenched beliefs, like what, you, you know, the American dream, like it's all based on meritocracy and mm -hmm. research is one way to start to convince people, um, you know, and there's lots of research that tells us like bias plays a role, um, you know, uh, environment and socioeconomic status are, are kind of huge predictors of whether somebody's going to be able to succeed or not, right? The concept of privilege is real. Um, but that's not enough, right? Because again, there's tons of research out there. If we all, if we all just read research, then, you know, we would all be doing the things that we needed to do to make change, but that's not happening. We'd be eating our greens is what we'd be doing. Yeah, no red, no right. red meat for us. Uh, we, we've been talking about this issue on the show. Our show is about five years old. I'd say at least half of that. This has been a really big topic. I'm curious as someone that writes books about this topic, how would you describe the current state of inclusion in the workplace uh, in the U.S. as well as maybe globally? How would you uh, describe the current state of the issue? Mm, probably the most aware that we've ever been. I would say since the events of George Floyd's murder in 2020, mm -hmm. um, the, the, the focus on racial equity has probably been, you know, probably the most heightened since it's been during, since the civil rights movement, right? Back in the 60s. Mm -hmm. Um, and, you know, now we have organizations that are not just like from the very large, but also from the very small and across many, many industries, right, who uh, I think because of all of the social unrest that happened in 2020, know that they can't ignore this anymore because employees are asking about it, customers are asking about it, shareholders are asking about it, right? So um, I think that it's it's not an issue that can be sort of ignored or swept under the rug anymore. And so I, I think you see a lot of companies trying to do things, but you also see a lot of companies who are doing things just for PR purposes, more so than than I think before. So would would you say it's fair to say it, it has passed sort of a stress test? Because if you look at the pandemic, if you look now with you know the the Ukraine 
um, invasion by Russia, and it's still a hot topic. So it sounds like what you're saying is this is not a novelty. It's not a passing fad. It's here to stay and companies should pay attention. Oh, absolutely. And is that why, you know, as a as a writing wannabe, I'm always curious about what the genesis or the inspiration was to write a book for you and to write it at the time that you did. Was it the George Floyd murder? Was it something else? Like, why write this book and why write it now? Oh, Joel, I feel like (laughs) that's, you know, um, I'm going to give you a really like unconventional answer to a very thoughtful question (laughs) because um, I actually wasn't thinking about writing a book back in 2020. Um, The events of George Floyd happened and I was just like completely focused on, okay, how do I address this? How do I take this momentum and really drive change in the organization that I was at at the time? Um, But then like uh, an editor at a publishing house reached out to me and asked me if, uh, you know, if I would be willing to write a book. And it, it's it's always been something that I'd sort of had as an idea in the back of my mind, mm-hmm. but seriously never thought that I would write a book about my work. I always thought it was going to be something else. And, uh, and so when this opportunity presented itself, I was just like, yeah, absolutely. Um, and the more that I thought about it, the more that I realized that if I'm really truly trying to drive change in a way that I think is going to be effective, that I think a lot of other folks, especially within, not just within organizations, but within HR could benefit from, Mm -hmm. like writing a book is one of the best ways to be able to scale the type of impact that I want to make. I decided to go whole, whole hog into that process. And and that's really sort of the, the, the key motivators. Well, I hope your publisher is aware of being, you being on the show and that they better start making some extra copies because that's the kind of traffic (laughs) that we warrant on this show. So, so Cindy, from the outside of Silicon Valley, because that's where we are, uh, it feels like a very bro culture brand. And as somebody who's in the position like you are, and you're 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 working for tech companies, how do you fight that brand? Because it, it seems to be true, or at least the perception is out there, and we all know perception is reality. It's the brand. So, how do you work against that? in your employer branding efforts? What do you do? Do you use your ERGs? I mean, what are the, what are the tips and tricks? Yeah, you've got to use every everything that you've got in your arsenal to really change that perception, right? So um, I think it goes through so many things in terms of, um, you know, sort of traditional branding things like who are you showing in your branding, right? Like, mm-hmm. What pictures of people are on your website, right? Um, what does your copy sound like? What is the impression that you're leaving, right? All of those things um, will make a difference, but it only makes a little bit of a difference, I think. If you, you What really matters is if you have leaders at the company, particularly the CEO or any others in your C-suite, who are actively out there and talking about this. Um, and saying that they're committed and that they want to make a difference and that their their culture is different, right? It isn't a bro culture. Mm-hmm. And then you have like all of the things to actually support that, right? From the types of benefits you have to the type of people that you have actually already hired into the organization to how you state your values mm-hmm. and, and how you run the organization, right? All of these things I think really matter. And I, I give you the example of uh, GoDaddy. Do you remember GoDaddy back oh, when yeah. it was a completely sexist bro culture? <laughs> yes. 
you know, employer brand perception because they mm-hmm. had these like really bad um, Super Bowl ads, mm-hmm. right? Right. And then they hired uh, Blake Irving in as their CEO. And he came in and he completely changed it, like complete 180, because he was just like, look, we are not doing these ads anymore. This is not who we are as a company. This is not where we, who we want to be, especially for our customers, 50% of whom are female. Yeah. Right. And so we are, you know, going to change our values. We are going to, he went to, the Grace Hopper Conference, um, which is the largest um, conference for women technologists in the world. And he got on stage. And when he got on stage, he was booed, right? Because uh-huh. everybody knew about GoDaddy's sort of previous represent- reputation. And, right. But he got up there and he's just like, look, I'm trying to change that. And I need your help. Yeah. Come work for me. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And, and, and he totally did it. And he really turned it around. And now, you know, I mean, he he's hired some of the most respected women technologists in, in the industry that his company um, before he ended up retiring um, and leaving. And now, you know, it's in, in other hands, but um, you know, I think that's a great example. And I, I had the opportunity to work with Blake Irving before he went to GoDaddy when he was at Yahoo and everything that he like presented about himself was like authentic and true. Mm-hmm. That matters. How much do you understand the future of finance? I'm Jim Roos, a top 10 banking influencer and host of the podcast Banking Transform, where we dive deeply into the rapidly evolving world of banking and financial technology. Join me as I interview industry experts, thought leaders, and innovators as they unravel the latest banking trends, disruptions, and game-changing technologies reshaping the world of finance. Redefine your understanding of the banking ecosystem. Subscribe now to Banking Transformed, available wherever you get your podcast, and now available on YouTube. So, how is using workforce composition, hiring, retention, promotion? Those have to be amazing tools. But when you get to an organization, you don't have those, right? So you have to start from ground zero. So when you get to an organization, do you automatically start taking a look at workforce composition, take a look for at the retention rates for individuals who are more um, uh, underrepresented um, and the promotions? Do you look at those things so that you can bring that to the C-suite so they, they understand? How does that all work so that you have a base to work off of? First thing I do in any uh, organization is I do uh, an assessment or an audit of all of their demographics and data as it relates to different diversity dimensions mm-hmm. um, and uh, looking at all their sort of systems and practices um, as well. So um, definitely looking at uh, overall workforce composition from a representation perspective, um, hiring rates, retention rates, development and promotion rates, right? Um, So all of those are the kind of like the hard HR metrics to look at. Mm -hmm. But then I always try to, um, I always couple that with um, just like talking to as many employees as possible, right? Like, because Mm -hmm. the data will tell you one thing, but you have to also get the stories. Like, what are the actual experiences that people are having at the organization? And how does that differ across different? groups. Right. Right. Um, And, you know, you can do surveys as well to give you some of that, but I don't think that there's any replacement for the actual stories that you hear on the ground. 
Um, and then, you know, you know, I think that that all of that information needs to be paired with kind of just a, a more objective assessment of like what kinds of programs are in place, you know, what's missing from this mix, um, mm-hmm. you know, how how when we look at your end to end hiring process or your end to end promotion process, like how do decisions happen? How do they get made? Right. right. And um, are there ways to make that more inclusive and or less biased? So those are all like really important inputs um, and, and the way that I really get started in building the right strategy for the organization. I want to jump to, to chapter four for a second, um, entitled Implementing Inclusive Talent Strategies. And we have a, a ton of TA folks who listen to uh, the podcast. And I want you to just sort of go through some of the things in terms of talent acquisition. The first thing I want to talk about is your opinion of referral programs, because in your book, it sounds like you you find them to be a good thing. But I've also heard devil's advocate saying, well, referral programs are just bringing in the same types of people into the organization. So there's a lack of diversity in referral programs. Um, did I read that wrong? Or what's sort of your advice for companies who are uh, implementing referral programs to be inclusive? Yeah, generally, I think referral programs can be great. It's just to to that sort of criticism of mm-hmm. them. You can't just rely on the majority of your folks referring in people. You have to also make sure that you're getting referrals from people who are from more underrepresented backgrounds, right? Should they re- increase the the rewards for diverse referrals or do you do you sort of uh, suggest otherwise? So I actually believe that you do what you need to do to get the talent that you want. Interesting. Okay. Um, and so I think, yes, uh, if there, there are companies that have increased their referral bonuses for people from different backgrounds mm-hmm. because they treat that as a skill set or perspective like any other that you're hiring for, for which you would, right? So, I mean, if I'm already willing to um, increase my referral bonus for this really hard to find technical skill set, wouldn't the the a similar corollary be to also increase that for somebody who comes with like specific knowledge about a community that you may be trying to reach from a marketing perspective? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Let's get into uh, job descriptions. And in many ways, this is sort of the first introduction or uh, messaging that companies have with uh, with talent. What, what tips would you give to writing unbiased job descriptions? So many. I think there are a few key ways that you can um, reduce the amount of bias in your job descriptions. One is to research what inclusive language looks like um, and take advantage of different free tools that are already out there on the internet that can help identify more gendered or biased language in your job descriptions. Like there's actual like word engines that you can like put your job description through Mm -hmm. and it will highlight for you words that are either like highly masculine or highly feminine. Um, And there's research that says that the more sort of gender neutral you can get uh, language in your job description, the more effective they are at attracting more diverse candidates. So that's one key way. I think the other key way, and I'm I'm sure both of you have heard of this, uh, where there's research that says that 
again, from a gender perspective, women tend to apply to roles only if they meet 100% of the qualifications and men tend to apply when they meet 60 or or less. Or way less. Or 20. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. And so really having a critical eye toward like, what are your job requirements? And um, are you putting in a lot of nice to haves as opposed to truly what is a need to have? Right. Um, You know, I think, uh, again, sort of making sure that not only are you reviewing critically the number of job requirements that you have to encourage more um, people to apply, but also what is in those job requirements, which is the third thing. I think a lot of people fall into the trap of, (laughs) and, you know, I've done this, of course, like many people do this, is like, I'll just like take an old job description for a new (laughs) job, right, that I'm trying to hire. Yeah, it's just Google it. Exactly. And I'll copy and paste, or I might modify it in some ways. But like, is that truly what you need for your organization? And taking that real critical eye to match it to the competencies that you want. Right. Um, instead of like blanket saying, oh, like I need somebody with a um, advanced degree in human resources for this like sourcing role that I might be hiring for. Like, is that really necessary? I'm not sure. <laughs> right? You're going to make us work, Cynthia. You're going to make us work. Well, the last thing I have on the, the talent acquisition side is we talk a lot on the show about artificial intelligence. And every week, it seems like there are companies who say AI is going to save us from a, a DEI and B perspective. Where are you on AI? When it comes to inclusivity, are you pro con? Are there are there blind spots? Like talk about AI for a second. I think AI can be great, but we have to make sure that we're doing it with an eye towards how do we actually remove bias in AI as well, right? Because mm-hmm. you know, um, algorithms, uh, artificial intelligence, like that's all programmed by human beings who come with our own biases. Mm-hmm. And if we're not careful and we don't put sort of checkpoints in place for that, then we're just going to perpetuate it through AI, right? So we have to develop AI that works in a way that doesn't actually perpetuate some of those biases, but can mitigate against some of them. Right. Um, uh, I think uh, I don't know if you're familiar with um, uh, Dr. Joy Bulamui, who leads a, an organization called the Algorithmic Justice League. Oh, no. Sounds cool. Yeah, it's totally cool. Like she's done totally. I highly recommend you research it because she's done great research um, that looked at, you know, like facial recognition software and how, you know, uh, lots of facial recognition software, especially in its earlier heyday, could detect white faces, but not black ones. Right. Right. Um, And, you know, and how when we're doing uh, when we're 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 creating the data sets for these types of uh, algorithms, if we're not mindful of who's in those data sets or who's giving us those data sets. Right. Because they were primarily white faces in those data sets. Hence, you get the outcome of not being able to see like have facial recognition for black faces. Exactly. So we have to like, you know, actually be mindful and then build for diversity when we're Mm -hmm. building AIs. And that's when I think it can be beneficial. So there are so many excuses out there, Cindy, but one of the one excuse that we hear all the time from leaders is they say that there aren't enough diverse candidates to fill the open roles out there. What do you say to that? (sighs) I say you're not looking hard enough. (laughs) 
I mean, at its most basic, like you're just not looking hard enough um, mm -hmm. or you're not providing enough of an attractive package that people from those underrepresented backgrounds are going to want to work for you. Right. Um, so, you know, that's it's sort of a two prong thing where there are a lot, there's a lot of great talent in underrepresented communities. Granted, they're not as many mm -hmm. in some um, fields as, uh, as others, right? I, I mean, we take the, the example of like engineering, right? And technical roles. Um, and we know that a, a majority of, uh, of folks graduating with technical and engineering degrees fall into the white male majority, mm -hmm. right? But that doesn't mean that there aren't like significant pools of like black, Latinx, LGBTQ, like, you know, military talent um, um, with skill sets that can be transferable into there who or people who can, um, you know, who may have 80 percent of the experience that you're looking for. Right. Um, uh, but could learn the other 20 percent if they needed to. Right. But it really seems like that we have the opportunity to go out and companies could actually get into underrepresented populations and they, they could create training programs that would build talent pipelines for now and the future. But it almost seems like we're waiting for the government. It's almost like corporate welfare. Right. We, we always get on welfare. Oh, it's so bad. But wait a minute. It's great for corporations. They're always waiting for the government to actually fix the problem. What should what should companies do now to be able to try to bridge those gaps? A, they should stop waiting for government to do something. Right. <laughs> I love it. Um, they should really start to think about how to build that themselves and, and making the investment in it. And, and by the way, not doing it just on their own either. I think this is one of those areas where companies have to stop thinking about just themselves and think about like, okay, what's better for the industry and how do I partner with other companies in my space so that mm -hmm. we can kind of pool capital, talent, resource, whatever, right, together to drive the change that that we need to see. Um, I think that, uh, you know, anytime that we just try to do it all on our own, um, we're actually setting ourselves up for failure mm -hmm. because it's not going to be just like one company changing the entire industry or, you know, changing the entire talent pipeline, right? There's, there's going to be a series of steps and, and a, a wholesale movement um, in, in this area to be able to, to do that. Um, and I just think that, you know, it's really hard for companies to kind of think more broadly so that they can, you know, mm -hmm. put the resources and, and make the investments that are needed to, to create these kinds of like apprenticeship or training programs and yeah. even just mentoring. I mean, you know, just doing that is going to make a huge difference. Well, also, hasn't the pandemic provided us with now the vision to start to think remote? Yeah. And then to be able to get into more remote, diverse populations, do, do you think that has helped at all? Or do you think that when really we get back to quote unquote normal, we're just going to go back to our old routine and remote is not going to be as prominent as really we want it to be? 
I do think that remote is is going to continue to be a much bigger part of the working world than it has been prior to the pandemic. I, I don't think it's going to go away. I do think mm-hmm. that companies will start to ebb a little bit back towards, you know, what you said, you know, kind of going back to like, uh, quote unquote, normal, um, which is what they were doing before the pandemic, uh, because, you know, we as human beings tend to not like change. And we like to kind of go back to like things that we we think were helping us, you know, be successful. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, I think that there's going to be some swinging of the pendulum back. I just don't think it'll go as far back as it was before. Um, I do think that having more remote first companies or companies that have much more uh, flexible work arrangement and work location policies uh, as a result of the pandemic mm-hmm. um, will be companies that are able to attract more diverse talent and retain it, um, which is the other, like the super key part of this is yes. not just bringing them in, but like keeping them. Uh-huh. Um, those companies are going to be the ones that are able to, to have to have more diversity in their ranks. I do really believe I that. I think you've touched on some of this, but I want to I want to jump to just uh chapter 7 which is entitled Measuring Success. And to me this is sort of the uh the crux of how we sell this issue to corporate America. So, how do you measure success? Lots of different ways. Um I think that, you know, from a uh business perspective, um the the one metric that everyone looks at as a measure of success in diversity and inclusion work is representation, right? And so do we have gender parity? Do we have um, racial equity and parity to available talent pools? Um, and do you see that at all levels of the organization? Um, so that that's kind of the first measure. I think the, the other measures are around um, inclusion and belonging mm-hmm. because it's one thing to have that diversity. It's a quite another to have that diversity feel like it truly belongs, right? And are, are thriving and are supported in the company. And so I think it's important to look at Things like your, you know, diversity surveys or inclusion climate surveys to understand what is the sense of belonging and get those stories from people, right? Like if, um, if, if I hear from employees that they feel like they have um, as much opportunity to succeed as anyone else in the organization, especially if you're from an underrepresented group, mm-hmm. then that to me is like is part of how I define success. What makes me personally feel really gratified in this work is when I see people achieve the career aspirations that they la- they've laid out for themselves. And it's because I've done something to intervene, whether that's provided them mentoring or created a coaching program or had them go through some sort of like training and development leadership program and seeing them kind of rise through the the organization, right. In, in a way that's like where they're still authentic and who they are, like those are the most satisfying moments for me where I feel like I'm actually being successful in my role. That is awesome. Well, the book is all are welcome. How to build a real workplace culture of inclusion that delivers results. The author right here, Cynthia O. Young, Cynthia, if somebody wants to find out more about you or 
I don't know, maybe even <laughs> buy the book. Where would you send them? They should go to my website, CynthiaOYoung.com. I have all the links to Amazon, Barnes and Nobles, IndieBound, um, Bookshop, right? Um, everywhere that you can purchase the book online. Um, I'd say if they uh-huh. also wanted to get connected with me, they can look for me on LinkedIn or on Twitter at Cindy o. Young. By the way, Cynthia, my, uh, my connection on LinkedIn is still pending. It's still pending. So I'm waiting. I'm waiting to be connected to you. Chad, another one is in the book. Cynthia, this was fantastic. Thank you so much. We out. We out. Thank you for listening to what's it called? The podcast. The Chad. The cheese. Brilliant. They talk about recruiting. They talk about technology. But most of all, they talk about nothing. Just a lot of shout outs of people you don't even know. And yet you're listening. It's incredible. And not one word about cheese. Not one. Cheddar. Blue. Nacho. Pepper Jack. Swiss. So many cheeses. And not one word. So weird. Anywho, be sure to subscribe today on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. That way you won't miss an episode. And while you're at it, visit www chadcheese.com Just don't expect to find any recipes for grilled cheese. It's so weird. We out! Have you ever found yourself scrolling through financial news and wondering, how does any of this affect me? How can I read a major headline and truly understand what impact that has on not only my portfolio, but my life? Well, our goal on the podcast Inside the Street, hosted by Wall Street analysts at Lashifre Partners, is to provide public investors and young professionals with a deeper understanding of the mechanics that drive those major headlines. And what better way to dive into these mechanics than hosting Wall Street analysts themselves to discuss the newest trends in finance firsthand? Well, on our show, we bring you real perspectives from the front line. Hearing these analysts give commentary has made our listeners much more well-versed on the financial markets. This approach to discussion allows our listeners to engage in conversation with much more educated opinions and predictions. So be sure to check out our show, Inside the Street, wherever you find your podcasts.